0: Have you ever met someone and just known you were going to become friends? That's exactly what happened to me when I met my guest today, the amazing JD Schramm. JD and I met when I was doing the speaker coaching for the TEDx Stanford program, and we just immediately connected. But he is really amazing. He founded the Mastery in Communication Initiative at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, where he served as a lecturer in organizational behavior for 13 years. JD has given not one, but two TED Talks, which have nearly 2 million views as of right now. And earlier this year, before COVID hit, JD launched a new book into the world called Communicate with Mastery, Speak with Conviction, and Write for Impact. You guys, the book is so helpful. It's so practical, and it's filled with so many just great stories and pieces of advice and wisdom, I wanted to bring him on and just have him talk to us about it. Now, before we dive in, I do want to offer one important safety tip. This conversation was recorded in person before Shelter-in-Place took effect in California. And then once the world changed, I invited JD back over Zoom to come in and add a little bit more color on some of the things that changed. Um, There was just so much, so much about communication shifted because of the virtual nature of things for better or worse. And so you're going to hear both the high quality face-to-face interview type and also the Zoom version. I just wanted you to know that so you weren't like, wait, what? So without further ado, please welcome my friend, J.D. Schramm. Okay. So first I just want to start by saying, love the book. It is so comprehensive. Like how you squeezed all of that insight into a book that doesn't look like it's 9,000 pages is beyond (laughs) me. And the question I kept thinking in my head was like, how the hell did you frame this up? The topic of communication, because it's all I think about, is so vast. How did you frame this up in your mind when you started writing it?
1: It's definitely the beauty of whiteboards and being able to be committed to the product, but not attached to what it had to look like. So in my office, I had a whiteboard and kept moving back and forth between that doesn't fit in that section. This makes more sense here. Wait, that section needs to be titled differently. Yeah. Like we're putting together being an entrepreneur with being a gay leader, with being somebody leaving the military. What is that? Oh, that's all identity. It's communicating as identity. So then let's move this out of there and put this in, in, in the first part. And that was being comfortable with it being iterative and being comfortable that it was going to, it didn't write itself, but it was going to inform me what the structure had to be.
0: I love that. I love that. And when you, okay, when I think about your life, which is very rich, you have a lot going on personally, professionally, like you're at the top of your game in all categories, pretty much. How did you carve out time for the deep work as Cal Newport says? I mean, that whiteboarding, that process, that iterative, that taking all of the skill that you've amassed in your career and putting it on a whiteboard, that's not like in 15 minute bits, I'm guessing. How did you carve out the time?
1: That took focus. And I, I believe in Cal's work a lot. In fact, my husband turned me on to deep work halfway through the book. And so I could literally put on my calendar or mm-hmm. put on the family calendar deep work time.
0: Yep. That's amazing boundary setting, which we kind of have to do, especially as parents. I mean, those precious souls will <laughs> they will like expand into every crevice of our schedule, right? So one of the questions I also had when I was reading this is, I because I got the pleasure of working with some of your students that you mentioned in the book, the low keynotes. And without exception, every single one that I got the chance to work with was already so well trained as a storyteller, as a performer. And I would always wonder, like, where do you begin when you were teaching that course and you had these people for X amount of time, where did you begin the relationship. When you're in front of the room facing your students for the first time, what did you say to begin?
1: Well, the beauty of the low keynotes program is we had in that program the best of the best. They had to audition to get into that. It was for strong speakers who wanted to be exceptional and people who already had a good idea to use the TED phrase that was an idea worth spreading. Yeah. So, rarely as a teacher or coach do I get those two pieces already handled. Wow. But the place that I would begin from every year was you have already done remarkable things to be here. You cannot rest on those laurels. It's now time to start working in a completely different way. And to quickly in session one, brainstorm about Who are the thought leaders you need to reach out to? What are the resources that you already have in your life that you need to align around doing this talk? What are the things you need to let go of in your life for the next two months to be ready for this? And we were early January to early March and some of my students would spend 10 or 15 hours a week on top of getting their masters at Stanford because they were so committed to this topic and to this idea.
0: So when you think about that profile, the strong communicators that wanna get better, what was the most common theme in terms of what they had to do to get to that next level?
1: I think two things come to mind, and I'm, I'm channeling the coaches that, that worked under me in the program. One was they really had to commit to their thesis and their position within the first few weeks of work. Hmm. When we had students that would, halfway through we did first views and they got feedback from people from the outside, and if they threw everything away and started completely over, they were they were not at square one, they were at square minus 10 or minus 20, because they'd lost that important month of idea germination. Hmm. And so they had to commit to a thesis, commit to a position, and stick to that, even if The data changed, the stories changed, the slides got added or got eliminated. Hmm. They couldn't keep revising that part of the talk. Mm. The second piece is that they had to be comfortable killing their babies.
0: Oh, amen, (laughs) amen. Not literally, obviously.
1: No, but there, (laughs) there are times that they were so attached to this story or this chart or this example But that made it a 15-minute talk or an 18-minute talk, and it was supposed to be a nine-minute talk. And that is where either having a coach Mm -hmm. that you trust and that that can be objective or a peer that can give you, as Kim Scott calls, the the radical candor, the type of feedback that you can say, you know what, I'm going to let that story go. I'm going to cut that slide. Mm -hmm. Um, This is really great, but... I, I trust you yeah and those are probably particularly for those gifted speakers who want to become exceptional those are probably the two things that that we had to do the most work with
0: well it's it's almost like a function of the ego the ego gets attached to certain things and has a real tough time recognizing that it may not serve the needs of the audience that it needs to go. And there's another part in your book that I cracked up because I've had the same conversation, JD, so many times with clients. You asked you, your big, in fact, your your frame, the way you have people frame a talk is the AIM method. Yes. Which is?
1: Audience, intent, and message.
0: Audience, intent, and message. It's a really elegant framework. I loved it. But you asked a client, what is your intent for this talk? And he said, <laughs> I want to impress them, and you're like, Meh. <laughs> let's try that again. Talk about that aspect of, you know, where the ego can actually make us bad communicators.
1: Yeah. Well, and the and the second part of that story, which which happened at, at Stanford Hospital, is he's, I said, no. What about what do you want the audience to think, say, or do? And he goes, ah, I want them to be impressed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like. Still not there. Just completely Still lost. Still not yeah. there. Doesn't get it.
1: And then the third time he said, I want them to treat patients with dignity. I said, ah. Beautiful. Now we're in the land of intent. Intention is not what I intend for the talk. It's what I want to cause in the people who listen to the talk, who view the talk, who, who read the blog.
0: That's right. And
1: and really getting them to think about intent being in the hearts and minds of the people they're interacting with is a shift mm-hmm. But as Nancy Duarte says, it's putting the audience as hero.
0: Absolutely. I'm not the
1: hero. The audience is... Let me take them on a journey and then let me get them to take the action I want them to take.
0: And I find too, as a coach, that if you can double down, I call it audience empathy. We all have our names for it. But if you double down on that, it can sometimes help with the nerves before you get up to speak. Because at least for me, I I give talks constantly and I'm never not nervous right before. But the thing that gets me up on stage is this is not about me. This is about them. How do I lift them up? What gift am I giving them that's going to make them better? So I I loved that story. Here's a question for you. And this was my favorite part of the book was the vulnerability and identity section. One thing I notice is that people are very interested in the skillful use of vulnerability and how they communicate. They really, really are. And you have two kinds of people, the people that get it and that know how to deliver it and use it really well. And the people that are nervous about it and sometimes either overshare their vulnerability for the wrong reason mm-hmm. or use it to manipulate an audience emotionally. And I thought, you're, I thought you did a beautiful job of kind of explaining how to do it well. Talk about that for a minute.
1: Well, I think the, again, it goes back to intent. And I ask my students or the executives I coach or, or the colleagues that I work with, why are you choosing to divulge this aspect of your identity to this audience at this time? and if you don't know the answer to that or if the answer is some sort of manipulation mechanism that will get them to write a check or get them to volunteer or get then we're not in the we're not in the same game
0: and audiences pick up on that they can oh. feel manipulation they know yes. what it feels like yeah
1: and particularly in this political season <sighs> we we can God. tell when a candidate's heart and soul is in what she's discussing with mm-hmm. us or when she's saying what she knows the audience needs to hear or wants to hear in order to get to the outcome that they're going for. Mm-hmm. And that inauthenticity, we can't always as an audience member put our fingers on it, but there's something that doesn't resonate. Doesn't add There's up. something that doesn't work. I'll give you an example. Because I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to your podcast mm-hmm. and this example isn't in the book. But I can remember working with a group of entrepreneurs in the Ignite program at Stanford, and they had an innovation that allowed people who were blind to be able to navigate the world better than just the cane. A cane allows you to know what is low, but you don't know if there's a sign in front of you or a cabinet door is open or something that's up high because the cane just is on the ground. And The entrepreneur began the presentation telling a story of this friend of hers who was blind and what the experience was like. And there was a photo behind that was a brilliant photo of a blind person. And I'm like, that's a stock photo. Oh, geez. (laughs) And you don't really know Kate, your friend, who you're describing. And then at the end, this person came back up to close and talked about Kate again and so when I started the coaching with the team, I said, tell me more about Kate. And everybody's eyes went down to the floor. Oh, my and God. And the, the student who had said it said, well, it's kind of a composite figure. Uh, we didn't use a real person story because that would be you know, disrespectful. So it's kind of a composite of blind people's experience. I said, okay, so who do you know in your life that's visually impaired? And they had no one. Oh dear God. And I said, Well, what blind people have you spoken to in preparing your product? And they said, No one. Oh I said, my God. That shows to me. I said, I couldn't you could tell, tell you why. You could tell. But when that photo came up, and as you were talking, there was something inauthentic about that. I said, in the next two weeks before you do this pitch for the final, you need to go have some conversations with the audience you're trying to serve because your product may be exceptional but you don't know the audience you're serving and you're you're talking about them in an exploitive way oh my god and you don't need to, and they were stunned that I could tell but the photo was too good and the story was inauthentic and when we i it we just knew these things it was there
0: we've got these tell mechanisms it reminds me of joe biden getting in trouble for claiming that he marched in civil rights marches that he tech actually wasn't at and i completely agree and i think vulnerable Vulnerability as a concept gets dragged down because of examples like that, where we're doing it for the wrong reasons. One of the things I love about your style as a presenter is that I've observed you on stage telling very personal stories, but you can tell they are for the greater good. They are driving a narrative point that serves the audience. And that's why, like, I think I cried in (laughs) your. (laughs) You And I still remember it because it was so powerful. But I was at a talk just yesterday and somebody in the audience raised their hand and they asked a question. And it was a moment of vulnerability for this man to ask this question. And he came up to me like a half hour later when I was with my suitcase, like rolling out of the venue. And he's like, oh my God, I feel like I just ripped a scab off. And I'm like, in a good way or a bad way? He's like, a bad way. I feel like I just revealed something that I wasn't totally prepared to reveal. Now, from an outsider standpoint, he didn't say anything inappropriate. It was just very tender ground for him. And I remember Brene Brown talking about a vulnerability hangover. Like, do you ever kind of warn people, like, here's the good and the bad about skillful using vulnerability, that it feels tender afterwards sometimes? I mean, did you feel tender after your first TED talk? That was a really powerful, sensitive issue.
1: I did. And it was uncomfortable to think about interacting with people who knew me without knowing yeah. my struggle with depression, addiction, yeah. and suicide. Mm-hmm. And it was also uncomfortable thinking about meeting people that the filter they had for me yeah. is, this is that guy from Ted. Right. And it was... So uncomfortable that when Ted asked me, can we put this talk up on on the website? I needed several months to come to peace with that opportunity. And I have people come to me all the time, how do I get a TED talk? How do I get something out on the TED website? And first of all, I think it's a big black box. We don't really know how talks get on the TED website. But for me, I needed to be sure as rich of an opportunity as it was. For my message about resources for people who've attempted suicide, as rich as that message was, I had to be sure I was ready to walk in that identity. It worked out okay for me, but... I had to be very thoughtful. I had to get a lot of wisdom around me. It couldn't be a quick decision.
0: And it couldn't be an ego-driven decision. It couldn't be. Because sometimes the ego is like, don't say a word, keep it buried. And sometimes the ego is like, put it on extra tonight at 6 o'clock. Like, you just never know which way that's going to swing. And I, I feel you when the Brett Kavanaugh hearings were happening, I recorded an episode about my own experience with sexual assault. And I had to call my mom before the the episode aired and be like, look, I got to give you a heads up. And it was the single most excruciating, terrifying conversation I've ever had. Her reaction ended up being incredible. But I remember walking out of that thinking, now all people will see when they look at me is victim, which of course, so many of us had experience with it. It's like, You know, one in three of us. So, and like you, I find that it's only been a positive, a net positive. But I do find that, in fact, my business coach, Ben Kiker, who I just love, he says, we're either expanding or contracting. And he said, sometimes after a moment of expansion, we immediately contract a little bit. And so when I was talking to this gentleman, I said, you know, when you're expressing that vulnerability, it was you were saying what half the room was thinking. So it was skillful, in my opinion. And now that you've expanded, your ego is going to contract a little bit. So just let it be what it is, yeah. right? Which I think is interesting.
1: And to be gentle with ourselves yes. in those moments. Yes, yes. And in the moment of choosing to be vulnerable, trust, be thoughtful, be considered about what you're about to do. And in the moments of of vulnerability, hangover afterwards, pamper yourself, take care of yourself, do some stuff that allows you to be with the journey you have just begun.
0: I think that is so beautiful. And that's that sort of tender self-care message is not the most popular when it comes to the business world, but I agree with you, completely agree with you. Okay. So remember when I said I'd interrupt the conversation to update it with some new information? This is one of those moments Just now, JD and I were discussing vulnerability and authenticity, and one of the many eye-opening lessons I've had this summer in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement is that authenticity is a charged issue for people of color. So over Zoom, I asked JD specifically about this issue. Here's what we talked about. So JD, one of the things I have been not struggling with, I think grappling with is the the better word is, you know, the cornerstone of what we do as coaches is we teach people how to access their power and speak from that place of power and authenticity. Like authenticity and power two really core pieces to what a good communication coach or presentation coach does. Having said that, I'm realizing that as a white woman, my definitions and my permissions around authenticity and power are completely different than what people of color experience. Or as I just heard a new phrase, people of culture experience. So, you know, for me, I'm I'm asking I'm asking this question not because I know the answer, but if especially when I saw that low-key note presentation that your student gave which I will have a link to. He was saying authenticity means something different for him as a black man. How authentic does he get to be? You know? So I'm just I want to put that to you. Tell me about where you're at with that. What are you learning? What are you considering as a coach knowing now what you're what you're learning?
1: It's a great question, Bronwyn, and I think it reminds me how our field as communication coaches, communication guides—notice I stopped short of saying experts—I <laughs> think our field is is safe. <laughs> there will continue to be a need for for the skills that we bring, and we will continue to need to bring our skills up and up and up to the next level. Yeah. The interesting thing about privilege—be mm. it white privilege, be it straight privilege, be it educational privilege—is that Much like a fish in water, the fish doesn't know that it's in water until you take the fish out of the fishbowl and it starts gasping for air because it can't live without the water. We don't know what privilege we have until something like the televised murder of George Floyd brings the whole nation, the whole world, to its knees and says, Whoa, what's going on here? And so I think that conversation about wanting you to be your authentic self coaching you to be your authentic self and yet understanding the cultural context the speakers coming from and the cultural context that they're speaking into Mm. you referenced the low keynotes program which i founded at stanford and i would invite all listeners after this podcast is over look at the show notes that Bronwyn will provide, but to look at Shawan Jackson's talk called Problemizing Persuasion. Mm-hmm. And Shawan, as a gifted African-American male, nationally ranked debater and, and competitive speaker in high school, goes back to coach the same programs that he had been so successful in and had that realization that he was actually, as an African-American male, coaching people the right way to do a talk and didn't realize it was a white way to do a talk.
0: That's
1: right. <sighs> Mind-blowing. As I watched his, I watched his talk in person. I've watched it on video a half dozen times since then. And I had to then call into question part of what I put in my book, part of what I do in my coaching, part of my interactions with people. And it's not that it's all wrong. It's that it can be more nuanced and it can be more effective. And that's the journey I'm on right now.
0: I love that, and I think that's the best that we can do because we're in we're in the system of privilege. You know, we're, you're right, we're swimming in the water and benefiting from the water. And I think it's true that the best that we can do is just start to see what we haven't seen before and make allowances for it. So for example, I'm not gonna not preach power and authenticity, that's never gonna change. But now I'm gonna understand that authenticity Means different things in different contexts. And as a white woman, it's very easy for me to be authentic on stage because my version, my authentic self, fits a construct that the culture has decided is valuable. So where I'm going in and in, in my practice is, you know, I will never pretend that I can be a source of, of expertise on what an authentic expression should, could, might be for someone in a different context than me that can't enjoy the same privilege as me. So it's, it's just, it's a trip. And actually I just coached someone three days ago, a person of color, and we both acknowledged in that coaching space, I can take you a certain distance, but the rest of the distance you need to go inside yourself and you need to speak to someone of color. I can't take you all that way nor should I Like it's not, you know?
1: Exactly. And the, the value that I think we can provide is to be able to offer that, that mirror at times mm-hmm. so that they, they can, uh, our, our coaches or our clients, our, our yeah. students can come face to face with how they are showing up to people who are, are different from them. And at times, instead of being the mirror, we actually need to guide them to create the board of directors or the, or the, uh, the focus group that they need in order to get the exact feedback that they want. And never before has that been as vivid to me mm-hmm. as it is right now in this, in this season that we're seeing in our, in our country.
0: Yeah, I totally and completely agree. It's a trip and and you actually the, the low keynotes program Maybe this is just my perception, but there was a tremendous amount of diversity I saw on that stage, and there was there is a tremendous amount of diversity in that program. And in, you know, now that you've moved out of that and you're on to the next thing, I, I hope that that program continues to expand with their guidance. You know, like how interesting what their perspectives. Now that we're opening the can of like, what does authenticity mean, you guys? Let's talk about <laughs> how how interesting this is going to be moving forward. Yeah.
1: And as you come face-to-face with creating a TED Talk or a blog post or a podcast or, or participate in an interview, as you come face-to-face with how am I going to communicate my truth, you begin to grapple with what's authentic for me, What what is a level of sharing and vulnerability that I'm comfortable with and that works for me and where do I need to be careful about that? Yeah. Uh, Adam Grant on his podcast had a great podcast back in April. Authenticity is a double-edged sword. Mm. And he talks about that being fully authentic doesn't mean being fully transparent. I don't have to hang all of my garbage out there for you to see, but I need to decide how much am I willing to share and what is my reason for sharing that? What is my intention behind that? That's right. And it's a, it's a great journey we are all on as, as a group of communicators and leaders who communicate.
0: I agree. And, and to me, the construct that always helps me with authenticity is, I totally stole this from Eckhart Tolle. This is not a Bronwyn <laughs> original I'm about to say, but it's little me versus big me. Little me is when I'm scared, I'm playing defensive, I'm feeling small and under attack. Big me is when I feel grounded, I feel loved, I feel safe. Not because the outside world has told me I'm safe and loved, because I've told me I'm safe and loved. And I find that when that alignment of like my big me meets alignment with the audience I'm speaking to and what they need, to me, that's the authenticity I'm always chasing. It's not like, like, look, JD, I love to swear. I mean, that is my authentic voice. I swear (laughs) like a (laughs) truck driver. But, you know, when I line up big me with what an audience needs, not every audience wants to hear me swear. So I'm not going to bring my quote-unquote authentic self to that audience. I bring my, my fearless self, my devoted self, my grounded self in alignment with what the audience needs, and I let it flow from there. So I'm curious to see, as I keep coaching, does that construct hold for people of color? Is that a useful construct for them? I don't know. I'm working on it. So it's just, it's interesting. It's so interesting. Okay, back to the main interview. That was just too important to leave out. Had to get it in there. The last category I wanted to ask you about, because this is something I get asked constantly, and I'm sure you do too, is storytelling. And, you know, people are so hungry to get better at storytelling and to understand where does it fit in a narrative? How do you use it? How do you get better at it? And I have my set of recommendations that I always give. But when you've got somebody looking at you like, help, help me become a better storyteller, what do you tell them? Two quick thoughts.
1: One, go into your own life. If you can tell a story about the flight to LA this morning or an interaction you had with your Uber driver that demonstrates the point that you want to make, mind the experiences in your own life. And the stories don't have to be intimate. They don't have to be extensive. Some of the best stories are three sentences long, four sentences long, but a little bit of detail, a little bit of intrigue, know the arc of a, of a, of a story and be able to tell that to us in a short, simple way from your own life. The second piece that I offer for people, particularly when they're new to an organization or new to a team, is that if you don't have your own stories, become the curator of stories. And so start off a meeting with, tell me a story about last week. Or as you're interacting with customers and they've been using your product longer than you've been with the company, say, tell me a story about how you got started or tell me a story about where we have served you, where we have failed you. If Mm. you begin to be somebody who seeks out stories, you will then have the stories to populate the presentations you do, the meetings you're in, the conversations you need to have. So first go within, and then second, go outside and ask, create a culture of storytelling with the people you interact
0: with. That is so powerful. And I do find, especially with tech companies, especially in the Valley, That by the time stories get approval from legal and approval from client and approval from corp, whatever the hell, they sound like corporate speak bingo cards. To maximize your ROI, we investigated the underpinnings of the inference. It's like, that is not a freaking story. (laughs) Problem, solution, before, after, like, make it simple. And people kind of get sort of victim-y about it. Like, I try to be a good storyteller, but look at this corporate speak bingo card I got from PR that says, this is what I have to say. It's not what you have to say. PR is not going to slap you on the wrist because you told a problem solution story instead of a gobbledygook story, right? Yep. So do you find that sometimes people put themselves in a storytelling prison in that standpoint? Like they they don't challenge themselves to go get it because they feel trapped by corporate culture?
1: Yes. And I think we have a lot more freedom as leaders in the stories we share orally, Mm. as opposed to the stories we choose to write. That's right. And so I may need legal's approval on something that's going to go on the website or something that's going to go in a two-pager. I don't need legal's approval to tell a story that happened with me and a customer last week with a different customer this week. That's right. Within that construct, I know some of the students that I've coached that then were handed on to you and you coached in TEDx Stanford when it was around, you gave me the feedback that they're too memorized. They're mm, really good, mm. but they I have to break that memorization out of them. Mm. And now I very much, with both the low keynote students as well as, as the execs I work with and the students in my classes, I say, familiarize, don't memorize. I love that. Familiarize, don't, don't memorize. memorize. You may need to know your first words, your final words, and you may need to memorize the outline. But wear your presentation like a loose blouse, that, That's you know, like it. one of those gauze blouses that yes. you would wear at the beach that yes. the wind can blow through. Not a turtleneck. That's It doesn't right. need to constrict oh, you. I love
0: that metaphor. And
1: that frees people up to yeah. realize, yeah, I can do it in a different order. Mm-hmm. I can spend more time on this story in front of the audience than I'd expected. And it just means I spend less time on this piece. That's right. And that makes it much more authentic and less polished.
0: I also, for me, I love trying to help people understand how to access flow on stage, which is kind of the, it's the confluence of like skill, all the things we've learned in this lifetime, preparation, and then intuition. And being in that state, it's almost like a state of grace. And I've seen you in that state on stage, so I know you know what I'm talking about. And you can only experience that when you're open partially to inspiration, to that moment of like a download, like I've got to tell this story right now to this audience and I just know I do and I'm going to tell it. And it ends up being like the perfect story to tell. And that's only available when you have that gauzy, I love the beach metaphor. I'm going to use that forever. Absolutely. Hi again, it's me. I just wanted to cut back to my updating conversation with JD over Zoom, because I wanted to talk about how we communicate well and how we stay in that delicious state of flow and bring forward our best selves now that everything's virtual. It's all Zoom or WebEx or GoToMeeting all the time. And this is what he had to say about that. The other thing I wanted to really talk about, which to me has just been a trip, is this movement to just everything virtual all the time. So you, you write this brilliant book, Communicate with Mastery. It's filled with so much goodness. And all of it still stands. All of it is still true. Nothing has changed about what makes a good communicator. But the medium has changed. Like, what have you learned? What has surprised you about moving virtual?
1: A couple of things have surprised me about moving virtual. First of all, I think we need to acknowledge that Zoom fatigue is a thing. It is not just a, a a phrase or an expression by somebody who wants to get out of a meeting. It is exhausting, exhausting to do this on Zoom. One of my employees told me, you know, J.D., two hours on Zoom is like eight hours in the office because I have to be on. I have to be on point. I'm interacting with a piece of plastic in front of me, not, not with any people and we have to be very strategic about how much Zoom we put into our lives, or or whatever platform you're using mm-hmm. for uh, distance meetings. And so that that surprised me. I could see it in my daughter, who is uh, going into kindergarten this this fall, and as a, a pre K, she had to do you know Zoom lessons at school. She couldn't do six 30 minute lessons in a row, she could do one or two and then she was done with it. And that's the same with us. And we have to recognize our bandwidth and we have to schedule ourselves thoughtfully around that.
0: And I've I've also noticed, and I completely agree with you, and I noticed you're one of those amazing, exceptional humans that makes eye contact with the camera lens, so snaps for (laughs) us, JD. But I've noticed that when I'm the one leading the conversation or when I have to be on or I'm giving a speech, the level of rest I need after is like triple what it used to be when I would come off of an actual stage. It's so weird. Like, I don't know why that is. I mean... I do know it's there's a million reasons for it, but I'm. Did you do you feel that too? Like you don't just need a little rest, you need like more rest than you did before.
1: You need more rest. You need to get up and walk around. You need to get outside. Uh, you know, for me, my shelter in place allows one trip a day to Starbucks, and and so I I had an intense hour and a half uh, webinar this morning, and when it was over, the first thing I needed to do was not be in front of a computer terminal for a while. Yeah. And I drove to Starbucks, called a couple of my staff members, checked in on some stuff, came back, and I was ready to to go back into it. We also have to be really careful in our scheduling of Zoom meetings that I no longer have to have travel time to get from meeting to meeting. But if I'm not careful, I then schedule a back-to-back-to-back-to-back day, and I am not at my best when I get to that fifth or seventh, I think my record is twelve. Uh, Zoom meetings in a day because I didn't have that travel time to use the restroom, to, to get a drink of water, to refill my coffee cup, to talk to the security guard as I went in and out of the building. And and we've got to build those back into our lives or we are it's not going to be sustainable.
0: I agree. I'm so worried about burnout. I saw this great thing on Instagram this morning and it, it said something like, it shouldn't be called working from home. It should be called living at work. And that's like <laughs> I feel that. I feel that. Like, uh.
1: <laughs> yeah. Love my children. I've spent more time with them in the last three months than I ever have on paternity leave. And it's difficult. I, uh, I love your quote, but the, the experience I had, I was doing a webinar a, a few months ago and I just started off to get to know people. I said in the chat room, why don't you list, you know, if you were going to shelter in place with anybody living or dead, who would you shelter in place with? And I start reading, you know, Oprah and Martin Luther King and Gandhi. And some, somebody put in Matt Damon. And, <laughs> and then somebody put in a babysitter, please. a babysitter.
0: <laughs>
1: and I thought how brilliant that's exactly who I want to shelter in place with is it's somebody that can help me with the kids and make me a better dad and a better employee. So.
0: so the thing that you just said has been, for me, the greatest technique that I have deployed as a communicator in the age of Zoom. And that is, instead of it being the awkward minutes waiting for the meeting to start, quote unquote, and waiting for people to join and when do I, ta- when is it time for me to talk? It's that really awkward silence that everyone is dealing with the first five minutes of a meeting. You do what I do. You ask an interesting question. And it always, wa- don't you feel the temperature and the warmth in a good way rise yeah. and the energy rise when you do that? Say more about that.
1: Yeah, well, it, it, it does do that, that break. I need to have some laughter, some connection, something that, that lets me be with God. It, it lets me begin to see the names, who can I expect to be a participant, who has some wit about them, who is already, you know, shut down before we have even begun. The reason I have such good eye contact with the camera is a 15 cent solution. I literally have googly eyes taped on either side of my camera lens. (laughs) They're as big as the camera lens. It cost me 30 cents to get two eyes. And it sits up there to remind me this is where I look. Not at your image, not at my slides, not at my notes. I look at the googly eyes. I have great eye contact whenever I present.
0: JD. That is <laughs> the greatest hack I have ever in my entire life heard. I swear to you that just like, I, it, yeah, I wish the audience could see what I just thought. <laughs> just unvelcroed the googly eyes and, and showed them to me and they rattled a little bit. That is my favorite thing. Good stuff, right? Okay, you guys, let's close it out with JD back to the original interview. Okay, so just to wrap up, I know that you're such an intentional person, but when you wrote this book, what was your intention for the reader? What were you really, really hoping that they would walk away with?
1: I find that many of the books in our field make presenters feel worse about themselves. They they set up standards and expectations and, and checklists that don't, Serve like yes, this is what a great talk should look like. It's almost like if I play a clip of, of Martin Luther King or Steve Jobs or Oprah Winfrey, and that's all I give you access to. There's a there's an intimidation factor, and so with the concept, and I had to the, the one battle that I won with my publisher. They wanted me to change the title of it, and I said no. Communicate with mastery is a distinction. Mastery is not perfect. It means each time you write or speak, you get a little bit better and a little bit better. Mm. And yet you never hit perfection because there's always room to improve. My intention was I wanted readers to go, ah, I don't have to get it perfectly. I just have to be committed to continual improvement. And here is a ton of resources, guides, examples, stories that will let me get better and better each time I speak, each time I write. And I wanted them to feel peace and assurance rather than intimidation. And that was my intention.
0: That's gorgeous. It comes through. It's such a, it's, it's just such a guidebook. It feels like you have the best coach in your back pocket. So I'm going to make sure everybody knows where to get it. Thank you so much. I treasure you as a friend, and I'm so happy for you. Congratulations on an awesome book.
1: Thank you. I have so loved your podcast. I commute with you every chance I can. I love it. And it's a privilege to actually be on the podcast. You make a difference with the audiences you serve.
0: Isn't JD just a treasure? he's the best. And just to remind you, the title of his book is Communicate with Mastery, Speak with Conviction, and Write for Impact. Pick it up anywhere that you like buying books. Anywhere. I have mine in easy reach as a reference point for even myself. And this is what I do for a living. So it's full of great stuff. And also check out JD's website, jdshram.com. Tons of free resources and wonderful bits of advice there. And of course, sign up for my show notes. I link to every single talk we reference in that conversation. There's all kinds of resources in my show notes. So head over to BronwynCommunications.com. Thank you for hanging out with us for this conversation, and I will see you next time. Shine on, you crazy diamonds.